You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The vaccine rollout has been uneven and often confusing. In this episode, we'll hear from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam on how he's trying to streamline the process after his state initially struggled in getting enough doses out to those eligible for the vaccine. We'll also talk with Jake Wood, the co-founder and CEO of Team Rubicon, about the creative ways he's deploying tens of thousands of military veterans across the country to help those in need during the coronavirus pandemic. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a, a columnist here at The Washington Post, and I want to thank you for joining us this morning on Washington Post Live. We are about a month into what has been a rather bumpy and uneven rollout of the COVID vaccine. And so we are going to be looking at that from several angles this morning. A little bit later, we will be talking about the role of volunteerism and more specifically, the role that our veterans are playing in dealing with this crisis. But first, our guest is Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who, as we noted in the uh, in the video, used to be better known as Dr. Ralph Northam. And um, welcome, Governor. Welcome back to Post Live. Thank you so much, Karen. And I, I hope that you and your viewers are staying safe and healthy. And I think all of us are ready to put this pandemic behind us and get back to our near normal lives. So thanks for having me today. Well, thank you again, for, as I said, for being here. Um, you know, your state had some problems at the very beginning of trying to get the vaccine, vaccines out. Uh, it's shown some pretty dramatic improvement more recently. Could you talk about what some of your assumptions were going into this sort of challenge, which is unlike anything we've seen in modern history? And what were you right about and what did you get wrong? Yeah, well, you know, Karen, uh, first of all, I think Americans, uh, all of us uh, Virginians are, are tired of this pandemic. Our first case in Virginia was on March the 7th and uh, we had to you know, put a lot of measures in place to, to mitigate the, the numbers. Our, our hospitals were at capacity, uh, people dying uh, every day. And so the, I think the light, uh, the hope at the end of a, a dark and long tunnel was the, the vaccine. And, and so we prepared for this. We started back in, in September. Um, but there's no doubt uh, it's been a frustrating process. It's a major uh, undertaking. And, and so the, the vaccination uh, program has been in place now for about six weeks. Uh, I was not satisfied uh, with the pace that we were getting shots into to arms. And so about four weeks ago, we made some significant adjustments. Um, as you know, uh, we brought in a, a field general, uh, if you will, to oversee the vaccination process. We set goals of 25,000 doses a day that would increase to 50,000 doses a day. I'm pleased to say that now our running average is around 40,000 doses a day. We're certainly in the top 10 of how many doses we're putting into arms per population. So, you know, we're headed in a much better direction. We're in a much better place today than we were six weeks ago, but we still have a lot of work to do. And I, I won't be satisfied, Karen, until every Virginian has a a shot in their arm and that we can put this pandemic behind us and get back to our near normal lives. Our, our children, they need to be back in school. Our businesses need to be back up and running. And so I, I sense that. I, I feel that frustration amongst uh, Virginians and we're doing everything we can. I know your next guest is gonna talk about volunteerism. There are so many good people 
uh, in Virginia, in this country that have stepped up to be part of the solution. I see it every day. I'm encouraged. And we're going to get through this together. You know, the Post has a, a pretty interesting story this morning on the front page where they say that the states that are doing better with this are the ones that have gone to a simpler distribution system, in many cases, a more centralized distribution yeah. system. Are, are you finding that to be the case in Virginia? And what kind of lessons does that say for other parts of the country? Well, it's a great question. And certainly, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, but, you know, we started initially, Karen, with our, our, our 1A uh, phase and, you know, really getting shots into the arms of our frontline healthcare workers, getting into our long-term care facilities. And, and that worked well. Uh, and then what happened is that eligibility was expanded, and, and that came from Washington in the previous administration. Uh, remember, they said that the stockpile would be released, and then two days later, uh, after we announced that, you know, we're expanding eligibility, uh, taking the age down to 65 individuals with pre-existing condition, vaccinated our teachers, frontline workers, you know, that stockpile was pulled away from us. And so uh, that was a, a major frustration that we had, uh, but we, we have made adjustments. We have sites set up across Virginia now. Uh, equity is certainly a major focus of ours to, to make sure we get into some of the lesser served neighborhoods. And, and so we're working with our faith leaders, our community leaders, and it's really been, Karen, an all hands on uh, deck process, uh, but, but we still have a lot of work to do. And, and our main uh, challenge right now, and this is not unique to Virginia, I, I talk with my fellow governors every day, we need more doses. Um, and, you know, right now, Virginia is getting about 120,000 doses a week. Uh, in order to get to 50,000 uh, doses a day in Virginia, we need, if you do the math, we need about 350,000 uh, per week. And, and so it's nice to have a partner in Washington who is factual, who's committed uh, to getting uh, Americans vaccinated. And, and he has promised us uh, that we will have a, at least a three-week planning uh, phase where we'll uh, we'll increase our, our number of doses to by 15%. And then just two days ago, we announced another 5%. We have a federal program through the pharmacies where 26,000 additional doses will come into CVS in Virginia. So uh, we really feel good about where we're headed. But uh, bottom line, we need more doses. You, you've mentioned that 50,000 number a couple of times now. Um, that is what your state health coordinator has said. 50,000 doses a day is necessary to get to herd immunity. How yeah. soon? If, and, and you're, you know, you said you, you're doing upwards of 40,000. So how soon would herd immunity arrive in Virginia at that rate? Well, our, our anticipated date is is really by, you know, early to midsummer. That's what we would like to accomplish uh, you know, one of the things, Karen, that was uh, a challenge for us is that, you know, we didn't know how many doses we would have in Virginia. And so the pharmacies and the healthcare systems were, were keeping that, that second dose. And now that we've got a commitment to have more shipment coming in each week, take those second doses and convert them into first doses. And that's why we've been able to, you know, reduce our backlog significantly and, and again, get more shots in the arms. But the answer to your question, we would really like to, to have Virginia vaccinated by uh, certainly midsummer, summer uh, and again, uh, get back to our normal lives, get our children back in school and uh, be ready for the fall.
Well, the administration made a big announcement yesterday, which is that they are going to make a lot of vaccine supplies available to pharmacies and other outlets across the country. I think they're talking about upwards of 6,500 pharmacies in, in the country. How does that change how things look on the ground? Well, it's another tool in our toolbox. Um, and, you know, we have sites set up across Virginia. Uh, the healthcare systems had been phenomenal uh, to work with. Uh, but to have our pharmacies uh, able to have those doses, you know, for the usual flu season uh, each year, most people are, you know, they're quite used to going to their pharmacies to get that shot. So, so that was a really important announcement uh, from Washington yesterday. And so we have now set up 36 uh, CVS pharmacies uh, in Virginia. Uh, we've put them hopefully in equitable uh, uh, locations across Virginia so that we can get into some of the underserved communities. But we hope that that program is expanded. So in addition to the sites that we already have, uh, going into churches, mobile units, uh, a lot of different ways to get shots in people's arms, the pharmacies will be a big part of that process as we move forward. So we're very excited about that. You mentioned that you now have a different kind of partner in Washington uh, in President Biden. One of the things that he has done is issued a requirement that on all federal property, people have to wear masks. Is yes. that something that governors should do as well on state property? And, and how are you approaching this? Well, thank you for uh, that question. And, you know, while we're getting our population vaccinated, while we work toward that herd immunity, we have to all remain vigilant and continue to wear our facial protection. Uh, we have to keep our hands washed. We have to keep our social distancing, not gathering in, in, in large groups. And, and so we have a mask mandate uh, in Virginia. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that has allowed us to, to keep our numbers low, to to keep our hospital capacity at where they can take care of sick individuals. So I am all about uh, the, uh, the president uh, uh, moving forward with that mandate. And uh, I think Virginians and certainly I hope other Americans are, are ready to follow his lead. But we know that's, that's pretty straightforward science, Karen. We know what works to, to mitigate these numbers to prevent the spread uh, of this virus. And, and we all have to be vigilant. And, and just uh, on another note, uh, as you know, there are other variants. Uh, there's the UK variant, which we now have four cases uh, that are documented in Virginia. There's the South African variant and also a Brazilian variant. And so these viruses, they're, they're known to mutate. That's the way they survive and exist. And the sooner we can get individuals vaccinated, the sooner we can get these numbers in our communities lower, uh, the better off we're going to be uh, as, a, as a nation. How else, we're only two weeks into the Biden presidency, but but how else does it feel different? I mean, he, he has sort of um, put together a, a drastically stepped up role for the federal government. It, does that leave the states the kind of flexibility then that they need to sort of innovate and customize their, their programs for, for their own populations? You know, it does, Karen. And, you know, the governors have had to take this role on uh, back from uh, February and March. We were asked to fight a, a biological war with really no supplies and, and no direction. And so the answer to your question, what's different now? Uh, the difference is leadership. Uh, the difference is being factual. Um, 
uh, following the science. That's certainly very important to me as a, a physician uh, because the science is it's clear. And if we if we follow those guidelines, we'll uh, we'll get to the objective that that uh, we need to have, and and that is to get this pandemic behind us. But you know, Karen, when when our previous president was talking about things like um, using disinfectants, using ultraviolet lights, using hydroxychloroquine when it hadn't, you know, been been approved, you know, that mixed messaging, um, and also I might add the political divisiveness uh, that that was present with, you know, just a simple thing about wearing a mask. But what's what's so difficult about that? But it became political in this country where. People that supported the previous president chose not to wear a mask. Well, now we have a president that's following the science, that's being truthful with our fellow Americans. And, you know, Americans can handle the truth. Uh, let's give them the truth. Let's give them the facts. Um, and, and then we'll deal with the rest. So it's, it's like night and day uh, between the leadership now and what we had previously. And so what else would you like to see them do? And how are you communicating this to the White House? Wow, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I'm in touch with the White House once a week. I'm also in touch with our congressional delegation. We have great senators and, and congressmen and congresswomen. And uh, first of all, we need resources. And uh, the, the main area that that will be helpful for us is to help Virginians get back on their feet. Uh, obviously, businesses have been lost. People have lost their jobs. Over 1.5 million Virginians have filed for, for unemployment. Uh, we have people that have lost roofs uh, with, with evictions, uh, food insecurity, uh, helping small businesses get back on their feet. So the resources that will come from Washington, and, and we've already had uh, a couple relief packages. I'm pleased that the president is talking about another relief package, but people are hurting, Karen. Uh, we've been at this for a year, and, and so that help from the federal government uh, as we move forward will, will be just very, very important. Well, this $1.9 trillion package is uh, is meeting some resistance on Capitol Hill. I mean, President, President Biden is on two tracks. He is negotiating with Republican senators, although their package is something like a third the size of what the White House wants to see. And one of the areas that is getting the most resistance from Republicans is the aid in the package for state and local governments. Why do you and, and, you know, Republicans will often uh, phrase that as a bailout for, for Democratic-run states and cities. Why do you think that part of this has become so politicized? Well, I don't know why it's become politicized, but it's unfortunate uh, that it's become politicized. And, you know, to your point, the, the localities, uh, uh, especially our schools, let's, let's take them as an example. Uh, to to be able to get our children, you know, back into the classrooms, uh, to to be able to do that safely and responsibly with the equipment they need, to be able to sanitize, uh, all of these things are are so important. And so, uh, you know, this is not the time to to play politics. Um, this is the time to to recognize that uh, Virginians, in our case, but Americans are hurting. Uh, as I said earlier, we've been at this for over a year and. And people are suffering right now, and and we are elected to, you know, take care of our constituents and 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 make their lives easier for them. And so I think if we all keep that attitude in mind, 
uh, and put our politics aside. You know, we call it the Virginia way, Karen, uh, and that is we can agree to disagree, but at the end of the day, we do what's in the best interest of Virginians. Uh, that's the approach that I've tried to take as the governor, uh, and that's the way we'll get out of this pandemic. You know, you made a career as a doctor treating children and families. Uh, what do you think has been lost in what is now, you know, almost a year of, of schools and education being disrupted? D are these kids ever going to be able to make this up? I certainly hope so. But our children definitely learn better uh, when they're in the classroom. The social interaction is important. You know, we've seen higher rates of depression, uh, certainly suicide, which is so uh, unfortunate. Um, we just had a discussion a little while ago uh, with, with my staff that uh, we're doing everything that we can to, to get our children back into the classroom safely and, and responsibly. As you know, we've put teachers very high up in the priority of 1B to get uh, vaccinated. Uh, one of the things that I think is very important that we'll be announcing tomorrow is that we want to extend our uh, our classroom this summer uh, to, to allow our children to catch up so that everybody will be ready uh, in the fall. So uh, we're working with our teachers, our school boards, our superintendents. Uh, it has to be a top priority of, for all of us uh, to get our children back into the classroom. Well, doing that in the summer also, I would assume, gives you some flexibility on social distancing and, you know, presumably even some of this could be done outside. Exactly. Um, and uh, again, we, we want our children back in school. Uh, we need to continue to follow the, the measures of, of wearing face masks. And the kids have been great. Uh, kids are so resilient and, and are able to adapt to, to that, uh, uh, to continue the distancing, as you said, will be important. But to really, you know, I think it's twofold, Karen, and I, I speak, uh, uh, I was a child at one point, obviously, but also as a, a parent, our kids need to be back in school. Our parents need a break, too. Uh, you know, we've asked a lot for the past year from, from our children and, and their families, and, and now it's time for us to, to help them. And I, I think to, uh, to help them out, to give them some extra time this summer to get them prepared will be in everybody's best interest. So in the in the time we have left, um, can you describe for people what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like when people can look up and say, you know, we are really turning the corner on this. Life is getting back to normal. What what do you see as the, the benchmarks for that? Well, we've really tried to follow the science and the data. And, you know, Dr. Fauci talks about this uh, also, as far as when can we get back to our, our near normal. But I, I really think that, you know, we, we have to follow the, the positivity rates. Uh, right now in Virginia, it's around 10%, a little bit over 10%. Uh, we would like that to, you know, come down to at least less than, than 5%, so where the numbers in the communities are, are much lower. We want to see our hospitalization rates continue to come down. Uh, our death rates continue to come down. So, so we follow uh, all of those numbers on a daily basis. And, and as we're able to, you know, we'll lift some of the measures that we've had to put in place, uh, such as the closing bars, uh, the restaurant restrictions, the curfew that we have uh, after midnight. All of these things have worked, but I think everybody, Karen, is looking forward to that day, uh, you know, when we can say, finally, we've got this uh, we've got this pandemic under control. We've we've got a, 
a certain amount of uh, the percentage of, of Virginians vaccinated. We've uh, obtained herd immunity. Those are all the things that we'll be uh, looking for uh, to finally say that we've uh, we've beat this pandemic. But that's, uh, what a process this has been uh, for the last year. Well, Governor Northam, thank you so much for being with us this morning. And uh, we hope we'll see you again soon here at Post Live. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. And it's just so important that we give uh, our Virginians and, and Americans uh, just updated and accurate information. And I thank, thank you for doing that. Thank you. And I'll be back with our next guest in just a moment. Now I'd like to bring in Jake Wood, who is the co-founder and CEO of Team Rubicon. And uh, as we noted in the video, you guys have a very big announcement this morning with, with five other uh, veterans groups. Can you describe how this came together and what you are hoping to accomplish here? Yes, absolutely. And and first, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come on here and join. Yeah, it was it was you know really an incredible opportunity to listen to Governor Northam talk about the challenges that he's facing in the state of Virginia. Uh, from our perspective, operating all across the country in the face of this pandemic, uh, his challenges are not unique. So today, we are really excited to announce the formation and launch of a new coalition. It's the first of its kind. Uh, Team Rubicon, along with five other veteran service organizations, are launching what is known as the Veterans Coalition for Vaccination. Uh, it's really an effort to coalesce the as many of the millions of veterans uh, that live in this country as we can to support uh, state and local governments, healthcare systems, and any medical providers that are in need of assistance as we roll out this vaccination nationwide. I mean, the one thing that we know is that it's a miracle that we have multiple viable vaccines, but vaccines don't save lives, vaccinations do. This needs to be an all hands on deck nationwide effort. And Team Rubicon, with our deep expertise in, in disaster response and humanitarian crises, is poised to serve a, a, you know, a prominent role in helping some of these institutions who are not used to the chaos of rolling out uh, complex operations and logistics like this, uh, to assist them with, uh, you know, implementing plans and executing vaccination programs, whether that's in urban communities, rural communities, um, you know, we're here to stand by and support. So what are the specific skills and life experiences that, that veterans bring to a, cha a chaotic situation, a, a desperate situation like the, the one that the country is in now? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a I'm a veteran myself. I served in the Marine Corps for four years. I, I deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan uh, as a scout sniper. So I've I've served in uh, the fog of war. I have you know operated on complex battlefields, and my experience is really not that different than the three million other men and women who've raised their right hands since 9/11 to serve their country and who have been deployed overseas. And their experience isn't all that different than the other 15 to 20 million Americans uh, who are veterans in this country, who live in communities amongst us, all around us. And what does the military do well? It trains these men and women uh, to execute complex tasks on the best equipment and to do that in some of the most austere and ambiguous environments imaginable. These men and women have performed magnificently over the last couple of decades and they are standing by as an asset, asset as, a, as a resource in these communities and are capable of helping 
healthcare administrators, of uh, public health departments, of local pharmacies to operate you know, mass vaccination sites. We started to harness this uh, potential 10 years ago, 11 years ago, in fact, with Team Rubicon. You know, our mission is to recruit, train, and deploy military veterans for disaster response. And over the last decade, you know, we've done that over 750 times, responding to floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. And really, this pandemic, in some ways, is not that much different. We have limited resources. We have limited information. And what we need to do is bring order to that chaos. So that's exactly what this coalition is doing. Uh, this coalition, with among all of its constituents, gives us access to over a million veterans. Uh, they're eligible to sign up for the vaccination locations that Team Rubicon is launching. We currently have 26 vaccination locations in partnerships uh, with, with county officials, in partnerships with uh, tribal nations, with healthcare systems. And we're hoping to expand in the coming months to over 500 vaccination sites nationwide. So what should people, what specifically will people be seeing these, these veteran volunteers doing at these vaccination centers? You know, uh, nothing miraculous. I mean, they're going to be wearing orange vests. They're going to be setting up traffic cones. They're going to be making sure that uh, people are maintaining social distancing. Uh, they're going to be registering patients. They're going to be uh, assisting with logistics, and they're going to be monitoring patients on the backside. And in some locations, as we've seen with the work that we're doing currently in Navajo Nation, we, we are actually going to be administering the vaccine. You know, we've been we've been running vaccination sites now for uh, over two months. We've developed a playbook for how you can set up vaccination sites in community centers, in massive parking lots. Um, none of this, Karen, is is actually that challenging. I mean, the beauty is in the simplicity. And I think one of the things that I heard you speaking about with Governor Northam is, you know, the states that are doing this best are not overthinking it. Right. And we're taking that same approach. It's that it's that military principle of kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, you know, we have to make sure that these protocols make sense. We have to make sure that they're simple, repeatable, and that ultimately people are able to to follow them, to stand by the protocols so that we can keep people safe while they're getting this vaccine. But also that we're operating these sites efficiently so that we can continue that throughput so that Governor Northam can can get his 50,000 vaccinations a day. You can't do that if you have overly complex systems. Well, speaking of complexity, the other word is coordination. And your previous disaster relief work, you've had to work very, very closely with FEMA, with Veterans Affairs. I mean, how are what does the coordination look like uh, to you at this point? And, it, you know, are all the states really as organized as they should be? Yeah, well, you, you struck on a really important word there. Coordination is, is the key to staying alive on the battlefield. And so this is second nature for military veterans, particularly on battlefields like we served in, in Iraq and Afghanistan that had large multinational coalitions. Uh, and so, you know, coordination has been, has been key to what Team Rubicon has done over the years. Understand that the American emergency management system is really designed for local execution. There are over 3,000 counties and parishes in this country, and, and those are the primary points of responsibility for emergency management, uh, as well uh, for the execution of this vaccine program. And so, yes, there's a there's massive complexity to this. States have a, a significant role. The federal government, of course, has a significant role. But the competency that we bring is that over the last 11 years, we've been responding in hundreds of these communities across the country. And when we haven't been responding 
in these communities. We've been helping these communities to prepare for disasters, to mitigate, uh, to execute mitigation projects in advance or to execute long-term recovery projects on the back end. So this is really a relationship-driven business. And so people have to trust uh, in the, the, the strength of your programs. They have to trust uh, in the training of your volunteers in order to allow you into that fold and, and give you the opportunity to assist in a volunteer capacity uh, in uh, situations like vaccination. And back to my original question as to how this came together, um, did the VA come to you or did you raise your hand and say, you need us? Well, um, you know, understand that we are still working through possible uh, uh, collaborations and alignment with VA. I, I will say that it's been really um, incredible over the last couple of weeks, the level of outreach that we have received from the new administration, um, you know, senior level leaders within the White House, within VA, within HHS, FEMA, DOD, uh, all across the spectrum of, of federal agencies have been reaching out to learn more about what we're doing and to try to, you know, chart a path for collaboration where we can add value to their efforts. I will say that, you know, everything that we're doing, um, the design of our programs, our path to scale, uh, is integrated fully in the, the president's uh, vaccination plan that was revealed last week. Uh, we've been very careful and deliberate to ensure that, you know, the, the designs and plans of, of, of our vaccination program nest effectively into the federal, state, and local plans so that we're adding value and not uh, simply contributing to a problem. Do you think that there is a role for the active duty military in this? And also, in some states, uh, governors have, uh, West Virginia, for instance, governors have brought in the National Guard as well. Well, I absolutely think that there's a role for the National Guard. Um, you know, this 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 plays to uh, their strengths quite well. Um, I, I would hope that um, governors continue to consider uh, easing the uh, licensure requirements for who's able to administer the vaccine. Currently, in many states, it requires a nurse, a nurse or higher, uh, and and I think that that's simply putting a a very unnecessary constraint and limiting factor on the volume of vaccinations that we can give. Listen, nurses and doctors have been on the front lines of this battle with COVID for a year now. They are taxed. They are overwhelmed. Vaccinating somebody is not that challenging. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to my military experience. I, I went to, through numerous medical courses uh, in my work um, designed to teach me battlefield medicine. I've put a tourniquet on a severed limb. I have shoved a needle into a Marine's chest to decompress a lung. Like I can stick a needle in somebody's arm and vaccinate them. And so we have to rethink um, some of these protocols. And, and that, that is up to our 50 governors across the country. Some states are allowing EMTs to, to execute this. You know, we're recruiting dentists and veterinarians to do the same thing. We really need to, to think about increasing capacity there, which brings me back to the National Guard. Many of them are going to have recent training on some of these medical practices. We should be allowing them to to execute the administration of the vaccination or of the vaccine. But as well, I mean, we need people out there. We need 10, uh, 10 people for every single person that's sticking a needle in the arm. We need 10 people helping to monitor tr to, to direct traffic, uh, register patients, monitor patients on the backside. So again, for every nurse and doctor, we need 10 to one. Uh, people to support. That's what our coalition is aimed to do. And that's exactly what the National Guard can be assisting with. 
As for the active duty, bear in mind that we've got 15 times the number of veterans in this country than we do active duty troops. So let's not go to the well. Uh, you know, our active duty soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen, and, and space force folks, and, and activate them for this. They need to keep our country safe from, from our foreign enemies. We have people who used to do that job who are willing to keep our country safe from this unseen uh, health enemy here. You, you mentioned your work in the Navajo Nation, which is a reminder that, you know, healthcare in this country is very unevenly uh, distributed and provided. But in addition to being a medical and health crisis, this, this pandemic has been an economic crisis for a lot of families, a lot of children sliding into poverty. You have also been involved in other types of programs, including food assistance. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, a year ago when this pandemic first gripped the United States, um, you know, we were, of course, in the process of preparing for our, our standard mission set, which is responding to natural disasters, floods, fires, tornadoes and hurricanes. And we knew that um, those things were going to continue to happen and we were going to have to adapt our protocols to operate in a COVID environment. But we also knew that this was going to place enormous strain uh, across society and that we were perhaps uniquely positioned to rise to that occasion. One of our first assumptions was that uh, food banks were going to suffer dramatically uh, because the typical food bank volunteer is over the age of 65. Uh, and so knowing that many people were going to be plunged into food insecurity, we quickly maneuvered our volunteers to go in and assist with organizations like Feeding America and Meals on Wheels. Uh, I believe we, we sent nearly 10,000 volunteers into food banks across the country, uh, helping them with operations, helping them to develop last mile logistics and, and food delivery directly to homes, things that they didn't have to do before the pandemic. But you know, you, you, you hit on a, a thread that I think is really important. Um, this, this virus is uh, you know, impacting our entire country, but it's not impacting our entire country equally. Uh, this is dramatically increasing inequity across the United States. And one of the primary uh, things that we're focusing on with our coalition and our vaccination efforts, as we did with all of our other COVID efforts, is how can we ensure that your zip code does not dictate how easy it is for you to get a vaccine? Uh, that would be a, a tragedy. And um, in, in, as we know, um, you know, communities of color are being impacted health-wise at a disproportionate rate. Uh, we cannot allow them to have a disproportionately low opportunity to receive this vaccination. Well, so Jake, in the time we have left, I'd, I'd like to ask you about sort of the broader question of this country and volunteerism. Um, th this this pandemic has simultaneously made us all feel very isolated, but also, you know, there's a recognition that everyone in the country is also up against the same enemy to, to some degree or another. Do you think that, you know, it may be the thinnest of silver linings, but that the country is gonna come out of this with any sort of different attitudes as to to what we owe each other? You know, we have a saying at Team Rubicon uh, that if everybody acted every day like they do after a disaster, we'd live in a truly special place. Uh, you know, we, we've seen it after tornadoes and hurricanes. You, you have people emerge that will go out and help a neighbor that they've never met or cross 
the proverbial train tracks and and go help a neighborhood that they've never set foot in. Um, you know, I, I certainly think that we have, uh, you know, gained some perspective over the course of the last year. I think people have seen enormous suffering. Uh, and as a result, they've become more empathetic. Uh, at the same time, I think we have seen a rise in misinformation, disinformation, and, and with that, a subsequent rise in, in conspiratorial thinking and a, and a refusal to acknowledge that this suffering is real. And so, you know, yes, there is a silver lining, but uh, I don't think it's a panacea. I think we have to continue to work to aggressively counter uh, those other narratives. Um, you know, uh, I, I actually see it as, a, as an existential crisis. So what can we do? Well, we need to we need to provide avenues for people to serve one another and we need to encourage people to do that. There's there's legislation that we can pass uh, that would encourage that. There's there's funding that we could allocate to encourage that. Uh, and then, you know, as appropriate for this for this moment and this time in this interview, um, you know, if we're going to get to herd immunity as quickly as people would like to see it, um, you know, it's time, I think, for us to call on our citizen servants and ask them to step up and assist us in getting there. Well, Jake Wood, thank you so much for being with us this morning and really good luck on, on this endeavor that, that you are, are taking on now. I mean, so many people are depending on you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having us. So thank you so much for joining us this morning and please tune in Monday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern when my colleague Heather Long will be discussing economic mobility during a pandemic with Raphael Bostic, who is the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. As always, you can head over to WashingtonPostLive.com and find more information and sign up to join us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.